gospel lesson comes to us from the good news according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Let me invite you to stand for it. This is his, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of our Lord. For those of you who may be visiting, uh, it's been a pretty momentous year for most of us in this room who've been a part of this resurrection network at one congregation another over the years. In the last year, we've merged three congregations into one, and we're in the process of hoping to purchase this property. We have a lot going on. And in the midst of this, one of the questions I hear a lot from people is sort of, who are we now? Uh, what are we up to? What are we going to be about? And why? And of course, as followers of Christ, those who belong to this church, uh, what does God say about it? What does he want us to be about who we are and what we're supposed to be up to as a people, as a new people, as a new congregation? Uh, you know, even Resurrection Clinton Hills, this is our fourth place of worship in the 10 years we existed and uh, we moved around. So even not having a permanent home, what kind of people are we going to be? And the church is always first and foremost a people. But then with questions, as we'll talk about after the service and the meeting, you know, if we were to inherit this property in some Fashion, what would we do with it? Uh, how do we want to steward this? What we want the space to be about? Uh, and Jesus, I think, speaks to this, of course, in many, many ways. But this is a special text last week and this week and next week as we're in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, just to remind you before we dig into it and spend some time reflecting on what it might mean for us today in this time and place is that Jesus, uh, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and he's setting Jesus up as the new Israel, uh, which also means the new Abraham, the new Moses, the new leader, the new David, the new king of God's people. But he's also the people himself. He's fulfilling everything Israel was supposed to do, re reenacting their history. And so from the very beginning, he's out, he, he, goes, uh, he gets baptized like into the Red Sea, but into the Jordan. He comes through the water. The Spirit guides him out into the wilderness where he experiences temptations and tests and he's victorious where Israel had failed. And now he goes up on a mountain and gives his new law, 
his new vision, his new charter of salvation for society that the new people of God are going to be. This is the way of life for God's people. It looks like this, the new commandments, if you will. And so we heard last week his version of the new commandments, if you're comparing it to the 10, it's the Beatitudes. And I'll read those again in a moment, actually. But now he's going to dig in and start talking about the kind of people that he expects kingdom people to be, Christians, followers of his, the way of life that they will maintain. And you heard some of it read already. He talks to us about who we are. And if we know who we are, then we're going to know what business we're supposed to be about, what we're supposed to do. So let me just pray briefly, and we will begin to reflect together. Father, I compile words upon words, uh, and it means nothing apart from your spirit doing work not only through me and through my spirit and through my words and through my mind, through my body, through sound waves and vibrations and through people's eardrums that hear those vibrations and the way that they turn into signals that can be understood in speech, that somehow in the midst of all that, your spirit guides and promises to come and give a word to each person here to give them what they need for more life and health and experience of your salvation this morning. So do the work, we ask you, to make this time meaningful by your spirit, because you love us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have two questions, sort of hinges of the sermon this morning. The first is this. What's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And you can keep this to yourself, but what's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Go ahead, I'm just giving you time to think about it. Hopefully you have too many things to choose from. There's a quote, uh, I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name properly, but Andre Asiman, I uh, was a professor, uh, at CUNY grad, uh, professor at the CUNY Graduate School, uh, and he wrote the book and became the movie Call Me By Your Name. And I love this quote of his, he was being interviewed and just talked about beauty. He says this, we'll do anything to watch a sunset on a clear summer day at the beach, We'll stand and stare and remain silent as suffused shades of orange stretch over the horizon. Meanwhile, the sun, like a painter who keeps changing his mind about which colors to use, finally resolves everything with shades of pink and light yellow before sinking finally into stunning whiteness. Suddenly, we are marveled and uplifted, pulled out of our small, ordinary lives and taken to a realm far richer and more eloquent than anything we know. Call it enchantment. The difference between the time-bound and the timeless, between us and the otherworldly, all beauty and art evoke harmonies that transport us to a place where for only seconds, time stops, and we are one with the world. It's the best life has to offer. I like the end of that quote, the best life has to offer. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is actually about the best life has to offer. Jesus called it abundant life. Life that is full and rich. The word he used as we dug in last week is happy, blessed, happiness. This is about having a life that is blessed and full of happiness, true happiness. And last week was the Beatitudes, these conditions under which human beings will experience happiness. The virtues that ought to make us feel most alive. And they are counterintuitive because we are mostly unaccustomed, unaccustomed to God's way 
of life. We have different ways of life that we've created. Loops and habits and patterns that wander away from his design for us. And so we considered how he started the sermon last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. I just changed it to happy because that's what the word means. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. And happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Today we hear something amazing. It's the how and the why we can consider pursuing these beatitudes for ourselves. Like, how do you find the motivation to believe this when it is counterintuitive? It's non-intuitive. To pursue and even, in some respects, to attain beatitude and blessedness and happiness of God. And that is that Jesus is about to tell us that this is not a challenge. It's not a demand. What he has given us in the Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful description, first and foremost. It's a promise, while it's also a judgment. It's a definitive declaration, a revealing word from the mouth of the one whom you hope might take notice of you. Jesus says this to us from our passage today about who we are. He says that you will reveal beauty and you will bring glory to everything you touch. We're going to unpack both of these. That is, you are light and you are salt. And this is the moment where I'll tell you during the passing of the piece, Richard Vernon came to me and said, I heard a pastor say they were very excited to preach this this morning because you get to tell everyone that Jesus says the church should be salty and lit. Um, there you go. We got to say it this morning. Light. Light. You are light, Jesus says to his followers. And one application of being light is to say that you reveal Beauty. Hear it again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. People don't put a light, light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand. It gives light to the whole house and to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do you see these beautiful things that I asked you about? The most beautiful thing you've ever seen. How do you see them? I mean, there's a complex health and science involved, but simply the power that enables you to see is light. Light, this, how do you even describe it? An entity, a, a mostly invisible power by which we see. It's been described by scientists as an electromagnetic radiation or wave. This is a quote from Cosmos magazine, an electric field tied up with a magnetic field flying through space. Sounds good to me. And this is how we behold beauty. It refracts, bounces off, illuminates. It also gives life and warmth and growth of certain things and nourishment. And Jesus says to his followers, here's the happy life. And by the way, you, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We are some mysterious power that is beautiful and that serves to unveil beauty. Therefore, that's who we are. And our job is to just live in concert with who we are. To be 
the light that we are. To do the good works of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, in particular. This countercultural way of life and of justice and of goodness and of mercy and truth and beauty and unity. We are light, he says. He says, go be the light. He says, you are the light of the world. It's an indicative, not an imperative. And so we are his people, excuse me, trying to follow his ways. And we are the light of the world. Like a lighthouse in a dark storm off the coast, or in the ancient world when he's speaking and you're on a long path and the dark comes down and you don't know where you are, but you see the city lit up on the hill and you know where to walk and how to get there. And you look forward to the shelter and the comfort and the refreshments that will be there. The light is there to shine and to attract people and to protect them from the dangers and to welcome them into God's shalom. The only challenge here is not to put the light under a basket. It's not to hide the light, to cover it up, or to let it get covered up and co-opted by other forces or other identities that we have, to let it shine. It says, you are the light, now let it shine, don't hide it. This is a quote from 2019. Uh, some of you will know the Reverend Tim Keller as an old mentor of mine, but also the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He was being interviewed by Peter Wenner in The Atlantic in 2019. And this is Wenner talking a little bit about his conversation with Tim Keller. He says, Keller observed that because Christianity properly understood is not a legalistic religion, quote, there is no New Testament book of Leviticus, end quote, he told me. Because Christianity properly understood is not a legalistic religion, it's not a set of new laws and commandments, it can be a part of almost any culture, he says. In that sense, it's a fairly flexible faith. Quote, Christians are always more incarnate in the culture, and the danger of that is that they get captured by it. That's always been a problem, he said. There's ever the danger of, quote, cultural and political captivity of not being free, of being enslaved to something happening in a way of life that is not the way of life of God. Peter's trying to understand this, so he, he pushes Keller a little further. He says, I pressed the point further, and he admitted this, he believes, and this is a quote, a long quote. Keller admitted he believes that, quote, most Christians are just nowhere nearly as deeply immersed in the scripture and in theology as they are in their respective social media bubbles and their newsfeed bubbles. To be honest, I think the woke evangelicals are just much more influenced by MSNBC and liberal Twitter. The conservative Christians are much more influenced by Fox News and their particular loops. And they're both living in those things eight to ten hours a day. They go to church once a week, and they're just not immersed in the kind of biblical theological study that would nuance any of that other stuff they're consuming. This is what it means to be co-opted and covered up. To not let your light shine as you are too immersed in any other cultural narrative rather than the way of life of God. The way of life of God that brings light to the world, that is the light within us that we are to let shine so that people can see the good deeds of redeemed people and glorify God. To glorify 
God. See, light can reveal beauty, but it also can reveal ugliness too. And it says that those who do evil deeds love the darkness and try to hide in it. But we simply are the light. When we're consistent, we will shine and some will hide from the truth and beauty that God reveals through us. But our basic function is to just be the light. To light up the beauty of this multifaceted world, even as we point out more and more the ways that it falls short of God's glory and his light and needs to be healed or challenged. See, mankind was made beautiful originally. He made us and said, man, look at this. So very good. And God still looks upon us as his beloved children, but our blindness is to prefer darkness to light. Our own ugliness is only when we refuse to return his gaze, to receive his voice of love as the most important voice that we consume throughout our day. To see what he sees in us as he holds up the mirror. And that is that we were designed for beauty and for love and for glory. Because he has given us his light. What he sees in us is lovely. Because of the work and life of Jesus. Because God has set his affection on us. And so our good works are part of the light that reveals the beauty of God. Meant to live out who we are to show that God's ways actually do give life. When we're merciful to each other, something beautiful happens in this room when you take the hard work of forgiving someone. That something beautiful happens and is revealed to those who don't know how to forgive or be forgiven. We could go through the whole Beatitudes again. That God's ways do give life. We're to shine this out before people. Being that light on the hill that is a beacon for God's kingdom, to show the way, to give the world hope, to guide them the way that a light does, to give them a promise of rest from the dark and from all the dangers of the dark, that there is a hope, that there is a place of shalom. There are ways of life that give life. There are ways to navigate around the rocks and make it safely to shore if you follow the light out of the darkness. My second question What's the best thing you've ever eaten? Again, I hope your list is too long that you can't narrow it down. I hope you just see a big feast on the table with all these different things on it. Let me suggest that almost all of those things that you pictured tasted the way they do because of an invisible element that you probably don't think of too much, and that is the seasoning. Jesus says that you, followers of him, are salt. My interpretation of that is that you will bring glory to everything you touch. You are the salt of the earth, he says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, salt, of course, is one of the most sublime as well as one of the most ancient of all cooking spices and additives, Sodium chloride is the only mineral that we human beings take directly from the earth and eat. We would die without salt, but we'd also find a good, uh, a good bit of otherwise tasty food to be dull and lifeless were it not for salt. Did you know that, in, of course you probably did, in history some cultures even exchanged salt as money. The earliest roads were built to transport salt. The earliest taxes were levied on it. 
Whole military campaigns were launched to secure salt. Salt gave Venice its start as a commercial trading empire in Europe. It helped Gandhi bring India to independence in the mid-20th century. Salt is powerful. It's also indispensable to good food. When it's used thoughtfully, it sharpens and defines flavors and aromas. It melds flavors in ways that transform bland dishes into something complex and wonderful. Salt controls the ripening of cheese. It strengthens the gluten in bread. It preserves meats. And just generally provides what Robert Farrar Capon called the music of cookery, the indispensable baseline over which all tastes and smells form their harmonies. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said to his disciples. It's a striking image then. It's a striking one now. But what does it imply for us? If we are salt, what are we to do? I just mentioned the good effects that salt has on food. But of course, to get that tasty effect, you have to mix the sodium chloride into the food. How foolish it would be to think that just having a box of kosher salt next to the stove will make a difference, even if you never sprinkled in the soup, right? If you ask a cook, did you add any salt? The answer had better not be no, but I have a box of it close by. Isn't that enough? That's absurd, right? But it seems pretty much to be the kind of picture Jesus had in mind. In verse 13, Jesus talks about salt losing its saltiness. However, in Greek, he wonders about salt becoming moronos. That's the word. If salt becomes moronos, what, what use is it? Now, this is a little bit of a, a word fallacy, but it still illustrates. Later on, we use the English word from this Greek word moronos to come up with our own word moron. Okay? Or fool. It's a little bit saying, like, if salt becomes foolish, what good is it? To have salt but not use it? To have a shaker of salt sitting next to the stove but never go into any pot? That's foolish. What's the sense of having it there if you're not going to add it to the food thoughtfully and with proper balance? You may as well toss it out the window. Salt has a definite purpose, and if you don't use it for that purpose, then it becomes foolish to have it sitting around. And so the implication for us is pretty curious. It means that we exist partly for mixing it up with the world. It means that for us to do our savory gospel task of making this world a better place, we need to be out there, being mixed up into people, culture, society, following hard on his, the heels of his beatitudes, which are very challenging. He's saying that if you're going to live those grace-filled attitudes and ways of life out, it's not enough to work it only inside a little church community. It's not enough to nurture a strong individual interior life of spirituality. No, the result of all your piety, of trying to live out the Beatitudes individually and as a church community, is so that you can pour yourself out onto this world, this earth, and bring out life's complex and beautiful flavors. To be useful in true salt, you need to mix it up in the world, bringing gospel savor. And the light still needs to shine. The pathways of God's kingdom still need to be followed. And it would be easier to let your light shine if you stayed in church all the time and never left home, so to speak. But again, if salt doesn't leave the shaker, it's never going to add zing to the french fries. And Christian disciples who never interact with non-Christian people have no chance of helping our neighbors find God's world and their lives in it fully savory and satisfactory. 
by tasting it according to God's recipe. And Jesus says if we do that, we will actually glorify the world. We do that in two ways. Two ways that we as salt glorify this world. One is that we keep the world from rotting when it tries to rot out. It's a preservative. Some of you probably read the New York Times. One of their writers is Ross Douthat, and one of his New York Times articles, he described the age that we're living in as the age of decadence. And this is a direct quote. He says, we probably aren't entering a 1930s-style crisis for Western liberalism or hurtling forward towards transhumanism or extinction. Instead, it seems we are aging, comfortable and stuck, cut off from the past, and no longer optimistic about the future. Spurning both memory and ambition while we await some saving innovation or revelation, growing old unhappily together in the light of tiny screens. The farther you get from that iPhone glow, the clearer it becomes. Our civilization has entered into decadence. That's his word for it. Following in the footsteps of the great cultural critic Jacques Barzun, who I've never read, but he's read him, obviously. He says, he says we can say that decadence refers to economic stagnation, institutional decay, and cultural and intellectual exhaustion at a high level of material prosperity and technological development. Under decadence, Barzun wrote, the forms of art as of life seem exhausted. The stages of development have been run through. Institutions function painfully. Repetition and frustration are the intolerable result. Does any of this ring a bell? It's a little too close to home. Do we understand the phrase that was once written, that we are busy amusing ourselves to death? Do we or our neighbors ever find ourselves longing for more purpose and meaning and hope? We are salt. And so we will preserve the good, even when others give up on it. We will fight rot, injustice and untruth and hatred and pride and all the ways that are anti to God's way of life. And we will hold fast to and celebrate any good, no matter how small. That's how we preserve in an age of decadence. When things are rotting out, we are preservative. And also we glorify and make complete that which is best in the world. We make it better. I mean, salt is God's mean to make things tasty. And so we must preserve virtue, but let's lose the sackcloth and ashes, I say. It's a worldwide party that we're preparing, a feast, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. If the salty community loses its saltiness, what good is it for but to be thrown out? God works with the stuff of creation. You'll see it in the bread and wine in a minute. You'll taste it. And so must we. His work of creation and redemption is of the earth. It's earthy. Everything he has made is good. It's good enough for tending and growing then harvesting by putting to death and feeding to other good creatures that they may have life. There is a universe of play awaiting us. And so enjoy this world that God has made. Be with it. Do you think this could be countercultural? G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity is a thick steak and a hearty stout. Amen. There's time to fast. There's also time to enjoy good food, good beer, Christians should be those who love creation, reveling in nature and stargazing and bird watching, enjoying the arts and cooking and brewing and baking and exercising, celebrating all the diversity of our city, adding seasoning. So celebrate others, encourage them in their goodness and their good works, in their good creations, and help them to become even better. Support them. This is presence. This is seasoning. This is preserving the good 
and glorifying the world. We are salt. And if we are trying to follow the light of God's way and live out his beatitudes and his practices in the Sermon on the Mount, then we will more and more be salty. And yes, lit, okay? We can't help but preserve and glorify everything in tiny and big ways. I'm going to just get a couple more applications here. Does it mean that we add new notes to Beethoven's fifth or perf- perfectly together we stopped all forms of impression, uh, oppression? Maybe sometimes. But more often it will be ordinary people doing ordinary things with extraordinary love. The love of Christ that controls and compels us. At a restaurant, no one praises the salt. They praise the chef and the ingredients. Just so maybe others in the world get the glory. Hopefully they give compliments to God, the chef. Our main job is just to be good salt. God is the chef. Jesus is the salt, and as he said of himself later, the light of the world. He gives himself for the sake of the world, because he loves it, to enlighten it to its full beauty, to glorify its goodness. And so if we follow him, we are following him, and we are becoming, we are, salt and light. He says this in conclusion. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come instead to fulfill them to bring them to their end, their purpose, their finish line, their completion. That's what that word fulfill means. And therefore, unless your righteousness, I know that's a religious word, but you can, it's easier just to like, you know, living, uh, living right according to God's way of life, how well you are. And that included in the Old Testament, included the sacrificial system and the opportunity to say you're sorry. So it doesn't mean being perfect. It just means to live out God's way of life, which half the time is humbling yourself getting on your knees and saying you're sorry and being forgiven and taking that forgiveness in and believing it and then then trying again. It's all included. Righteousness is just living according to the way that God is asking us to live. And he says, unless your righteousness far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Now that would have freaked everyone out. Makes no sense. These are the most pretentious, righteous, holy, you know, otherworldly people you've ever seen. And Jesus says, no. The law is good and necessary, but it's insufficient. And so I'm going to try to spend just two minutes on this in closing. I'm going to give you an illustration. Imagine that you have a child, and this child has got a bad habit of getting in the cookie jar all the time. It's not going so well for the child in lots of ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, to be on sugar that much and not to have enough nutrients. And so one day you say, you are not allowed to get in the cookie jar anymore. I'm putting this lid on the cookie jar. It's going to live here where I can see it. Don't get into that cookie jar. So you come home one day late at night and you find that the kid has taken this jar of cookies and dumped all the cookies into a bag and then put the jar back and is eating the cookies out of the bag. You're like, what are you doing? And the kid says, you told me not to get into the cookie jar. So I just poured everything out of the cookie jar. I got into the bag. Nice. I just gave you a parable for how we should understand God's law in the Torah, the Old Testament, how the New Testament talks about it, and that's this, that the law itself is good. But people will find all sorts of ways to miss the point of the law, right? The law is based on God's character for a certain people at a certain time. The Torah was meant, it told them how they're supposed to live in this ancient Near East area and what sort of ways. Some of the laws are so beautiful. 
If you own land and you had a big field, you, you were, had to leave the outside of your field for those who couldn't afford it and didn't have land. And they could walk by and pluck grains of wheat and take it home. That was a law that you had to do. Well, of course, they found ways to kind of keep the appearance of the law, but their heart to be far from it, far from God's character. And this is the danger of all religions everywhere that emphasize law and obedience and do it like this, is that they miss that the point of the law is this, and I didn't tell you this part of the parent. The parent is actually disappointed, not just because the cookies are doing damage to their child. The parent is disappointed because the law was there to protect the kid, but also because she had planned to make things better this week with the cookies and then give a special surprise on Friday night where they would get all the fixings for a huge Sunday. They would build a Sunday together. They would enjoy it together. They'd go nuts, and they'd pour as many cookies as they want right over the top of that thing. It's going to be a celebration and a gift shared. This is the point of all law from God. Law is only there to put us in the right direction to experience his love. And when it doesn't, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but psh, I tell you this. Uh, they watered that down. They still tithe, but they should have remembered all the other stuff too, like mercy and justice, not just the dill and the cumin tithes. It was always about love because law can coerce behavior, but it can't change hearts. And if it can't change hearts, it can't empower real, lasting, and holistic change in individuals, in communities, or in the world. Only God's love by the power of his Holy Spirit can do that. And law is fulfilled by love. That's what he means when he says, our righteousness, being that it's based on this relationship with Jesus and being unified to him and loving him because he's loved us first, saying, you're the light, you're the one that glorifies things, you're the salt, you've made me light and salt when I am so full of darkness and tastelessness sometimes. Yes, Lord, I love you back. And you love him, and suddenly you begin to exceed the ordinary obligations of codes and rules and laws. You begin to exceed the laws of the left and the laws of the right, sometimes even perhaps the laws of the land. Because against such things... As salt and light, animated by God's love, against such things there is no law. And so if we come to know Jesus has set us free, he's fulfilled the law that we might experience his love, and he shows us a way of life because in that way of life we get to be what we are, which is you are salt, you are light. You can try to hide the light, you can try to let the salt grow stale in the cupboard, but you're still salt and light. And so I close with this. What are we actually called to? We naturally will light up the world, preserve and glorify the world and make it tasty. The only thing that we're called to do as salt and light is to share yourself. Share yourself in love. Share yourself and the world will see beauty. Share yourself and the world will be glorified. I close with the last half of that quote that I opened with from Andre Asiman about beauty. He says this, call it enchantment, the difference between the time bound and the timeless between us and the otherworldly. All beauty and art evoke harmonies that transport us to a place where for only seconds time stops and we are one with the world as the best life has to offer. 
under the spell of beauty, we experience a rare condition called plenitude, where we want for nothing. It isn't just a feeling. Or if it is, it's a feeling like love. Yes, exactly like love. Love, after all, is the most intimate thing we know. And feeling one with someone or something isn't just an unrivaled condition, but it's one we don't want to live without. We fall in love with sunsets and beaches, with tennis, with works of art, with places like Tuscany and the Rockies and the south of France, and of course with other people, not just because of who or what they are, but because they promise to realign us with our better selves, with the people we've always known we were, but neglected to become, the people we crave to be before our time runs out. You are salt and light. May you become the people you crave to be by God's grace and power. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.